when she began to speak, it was almost as if a thousand eyes all rolled at the same time in perfect unison. Put yourself in the room there with me. You're in a hotel banquet room somewhere in a suburb outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. You got up two or three hours uh, before. You drove here. You drove in the dark, and it just started to become light as you arrived. You pull into the parking lot on pins and needles just to find that the parking lot is jam-packed full for today's meeting with other men just like you, unhappy that you're there and unsure of what to expect. Inside the hotel lobby, no one is talking, even though the passageways are all crowded. Teams of military personnel staff all the check-in tables, but no one is authorized to answer any of the questions that you have. There are no snack stations, there's no bright banners, and the coffee is burnt and cold. And even though the doors are open to go in, nobody feels bold enough to walk into the empty room that's quiet inside. So five minutes before the meeting is scheduled to start, you file in through the doors with hundreds of others, still mostly silent and still mostly unwilling to engage anyone else in conversation. None of you want to be there, but each of you has been summoned to report to duty here this morning. By penalty of the UCMJ, where you could be prosecuted as a deserter or prosecuted with unauthorized absence, even though you are no longer part of active duty military. Then she comes to the mic. She's a civilian. She's the only one dressed in civilian clothes and not in uniform on the platform. It would seem maybe she's the hotel manager or something. She greets you. She welcomes you to Charlotte, North Carolina, and lets you know that the hotel is here to serve you in any way that they possibly can, and they're so glad to have you here this morning. She thanks you for your military service and for the way you have made everyone so proud of you and when our country was brutally attacked by terrorists in 9-11 and a thousand men all roll their eyes in perfect unison. This is what happened to me back in the fall of 2006 as part of the troop surge for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. It was going to be announced two months later in January of 2007, but we were gathered together before that. There was a frustration in the room of these men, and it was all due to the fact that they had all fulfilled their four-year enlistments uh, as they had expected. Now they had moved on to their regular lives in the civilian world. This is where they were earning their college degrees. Most were starting their families, and they had all moved on from their active-duty Marine Corps state of mind. Many of you have lived through, maybe you remember yourself, or maybe it was your parents, or maybe it was your grandparents, the days in the era in this country when people were being drafted to go to to war, go to war in Vietnam. And so since those days, our military has been entirely volunteer-driven. We have a volunteer-only armed service corps. But this is the spot that we were at in the nation in 2006. We were one step away from reinstating a draft again. And the one step away meant that we were going to recall, call back those who had already served in the military. And I was on the list. I was in the recall. I was a sergeant at the time in E5, that is in the Marine Corps, meaning that I was qualified to lead troops, to lead men into the battlefield. And in your first four years, there's not many guys who get that rank unless they've received it meritoriously. And I did receive my rank meritoriously by taking extra classes, uh, getting extra certifications, doing my job well, keeping my head down, and generally staying out of trouble. 
I had not, however, earned any of the three stripes that were on my shoulder by being in combat. My entire time in the military, I'd spent with a clean uniform, polished boots, and a fresh haircut. That was not the case, however, about the men that were sitting around me. These guys were a different breed. Many of them had served one, two, and even three tours in combat theater, and they knew the toll and they knew the cost that it takes on a person. They personally knew of the strain of being on the other side of the globe when your first child is born, or the strain that it takes when a Thanksgiving meal happens and there's an empty seat at the table and it's yours. So the last thing they wanted to hear about, particularly from this seemingly naive woman speaking from the front, was how combat was in some way some type of noble act for them to participate in. They knew better. These former Marines had all gotten out of the military for a reason, and they were ready to move on with their lives. She finished her greeting, she offered a quick prayer for us, and then she stepped aside and the commanding officer stepped to the center and very quickly and methodically moved down to, that was the reason that we were there. No fluff, he just laid it out there. He laid the mission out at hand, and that is to stabilize the region overseas, establish a democratic entity that could govern itself. That's what the mission was at hand. Then he reminded us something like this. He said something like, Marines, we've got a mission to fulfill. We don't make policy, so however you feel about the policy that's been made is irrelevant. We're here to do a job, and we're going to finish the job, and we're going to come back. And then he asked for volunteers. There's something about being in the room, being in a group of people. When you hear the words, you're going overseas, we're going to pray for you, and we're going to pray that you might come back. That changes you. It's a powerful reminder that our world was truly in a state of conflict. And certainly, as I know you already know, we are still in a state of conflict. And every once in a while, there'll be someone who comes around, someone on the news or someone in your life who just says, uh, one day uh, we could all just get together and there will be world peace. And there is a day, to be fair, there is a day when that is going to happen. The day when they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. There won't be any war anymore. That's called the return of Jesus Christ. That's when it happens. And that's the day that we all look forward to. But until that day, until that glorious day, we live here on earth. And it's a conflicted world. Our politicians are at each other's throats. Our educators are confused and fighting with each other what the best way to educate during a pandemic is. And our communities are still in an uproar because we've got this basic human interaction that is being interfered with, with masks over our faces and screens between us, and we just can't seem to figure out how to do this. We just need a breath of fresh air, a moment without a crisis in our face, a moment of peace. Did you know that only 8% of all of the world's history has been in time of peace? 8%. That means 92% of our world history has been in a time of war, an ever-burning blaze of conflict. The very military experience that I was talking about, the engagement that I'm describing, has now reached 20 years of active engagement, 20-year anniversary of troops being on the ground in Afghanistan, and yet the conflict rages on. So what are we supposed to do? Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do here this morning. It's what we're going to try to do each time that we come together. We're going to open God's Word and see if He has anything to say about it.
Isn't that what we should be doing anyway? If this conflict is really part of our human experience, wouldn't you expect that the Bible would have something to say about it? Even if you're here today, if you're watching at home, watching online, uh, and you're looking at us, and you're a skeptic, and you don't believe that the church has anything to offer, and you don't believe that, that our faith tradition is, is, has anything to mean, wouldn't you actually think that we would dive into our ancient text and expect that it would have something to say today? And so that's exactly what we are going to do. We're going to expect that the Bible is going to be able to answer life's toughest questions. So open your Bibles this morning, if you will, to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 3. If I failed to introduce myself earlier, my name is Pastor Milo. And if you're just dropping in on us this morning here in the room or watching online, we are week number seven in a series on the life of David. David, the toughest kid in all of Scripture, the most celebrated king in all of Israel, and the man who gets the title from God, the man after God's own heart. Now, if you had invited me over to, to watch a, a, a series on Netflix or on Hulu, and you said, we're going to start in week number seven, episode number seven, I would have to hope that there would be some type of synopsis at the beginning that would help catch me up to what on earth is going on. And so if you're checking in with us for the first time this morning, I'm going to try to summarize for you very quickly where we're at. And for those of you who know the story, let's just refresh our minds together. You remember the time when God tells the prophet Samuel, tells him to go to the house of Jesse, and he tells him that you are going to anoint a new king. So bring some oil with you. He says, I've rejected the current king. The current king's name was Saul. And I've got this new guy. I've got this man after my own heart. Well, truth be told, it's a kid after his own heart because when he goes to anoint him, all the brothers come through. All of the children of Saul come through, and it's the last one, David, who has been chosen. And this is the one who God has chose to rule the country. Now, let's be real. David was God's choice, but David was far from flawless. He was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a man who failed, a man who was flawed, but he is a man who was forgiven. And so last week we saw how he lost his temper. If you were here, Pastor Jonathan talked how he lost his temper and nearly killed a man. If it wasn't for the quick wit and the wisdom of a woman named Abigail, David would have really made a rash decision. And so today we're opening up in, in 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel, we read the familiar words at the opening of the book, particularly if you have the King James Version in front of you, these familiar words that kind of put all the pieces of the story together. And it came to pass. And so as we open up 2 Samuel, what came to pass was that after the death of Saul, so King Saul is now dead, along with Saul, his son Jonathan, heir to the throne, as well as two additional brothers of Jonathan. And it came to pass, you see, Saul's reign was not meant to last forever. It came to pass, and the king of this young nation is now dead. His body lies up on the top of Mount Gilboa, and the fractured hopes of the nation are left behind. But God has not abandoned Israel, for from the rubble of Saul's leadership comes David, the young shepherd king, with God's anointing on his head and a fire for God's glory in his heart. So let's read. We're in chapter 3 now. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Let's read together. 2 Samuel chapter 3. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. 
Sons were born to David in Hebron. His first was Amnon, the son of Anoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Mekah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. If you just want to have some fun, try to read all of these together. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Sheptathiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream, the son of David's wife, Elgla. And they were born to David in Hebron. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthened in his strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth had said. So he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. May God strike me and even kill me if I don't do everything I can to help David get what the Lord has promised to him. I'm going to take Saul's kingdom and I will give it to David. I will establish the throne of David over Israel as well as Judah all the way from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. We're introduced here today to Abner. We're going to talk today about David and Abner. And Abner is looking like a kingmaker. Abner is looking like a kingmaker. Abner, he's the cousin of King Saul. He's been the commander of Saul's army. He set up Saul's weak son, his weak-mannered son named Ishbosheth, as a rival king to David. Abner's even convinced the majority of the tribes there in the north to stay with Ishbosheth. And Abner, if he has anything in the story, he is self-proclaiming himself as now a kingmaker. Back in chapter 2, we didn't read it here just now, but he said, in chapter 2, verse 9, he said, He made him the king, talking about Ishbosheth, over Gilead. Get this impression that Abner is in charge of the affair, as it were. He said, Come on over here, Ishbosheth. Come on over here. I'm going to make you the king. So at this point in the story, there are two kings one that is anointed by God, and one that's been anointed by Abner. David was anointed by Samuel in obedience to God, this God fearing man, Samuel, who has placed all things on his head, knowing that God had his name written there. And now Abner, on the other side of things, was a quick-witted, smart man who's realizing that the family was in jeopardy and that in order to keep the family in the palace, putting Ishbosheth there, that they could keep Saul's son in the palace. And in some ways, it makes sense. So who's going to come out on top? David can't consult Samuel as to what to do because Samuel has now gotten old and has passed away previous years ago. So what is he to do? What is it that God wants from him? So whatever happens, as we look today, whatever happens, you're going to see that the pathway is not straight to the throne. It's not a straight line. It's pretty clear that David has not set his life out on a target that says, I want to become the king of Israel. At no point along the way can David be accused of manipulating the situation or, or calculating things in a way and securing the throne for himself. He's simply going about his business, and God sets and places his hand on him and anoints him. And it's very likely that David would have preferred to have stayed there with the sheep back in Bethlehem. But God has other plans for him. You see, the problem here for Abner is that the war, as it continues between the house of David and the house of Saul, David, it says, grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. 
So Saul, excuse me, so Abner was becoming more in a house that was becoming less. He is rising to the top of a house that is going down. It's not a good spot to be in. It's not a position that anyone would want to be in. So we should not be surprised when we read here that there's a falling out, a major falling out between Abner and the son of Saul, Ishbosheth, who he had anointed as king. Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, we read, and Abner took her. So Ishbosheth may have been Saul's son, but he was certainly not acting like his father. Saul, with all of his flaws, was a man that people wanted to follow. He was tall. He was good-looking. When he walked into a room, he commanded the attention of everyone in the room. People wanted to be around him, and when the chips were down, they were willing to fight for King Saul, and they were willing to fight for the nation of Israel. Ishbosheth, however, with his mild-mannered personality, his lack of experience, his lack of leadership gifts, was losing the people's affection, and in turn was now losing the war. Something had to be done. So Abner did something. Abner takes Saul's concubine, the king's former lover, and takes her as his own. So taking a former concubine in that ancient culture is a very public way of laying claim to the throne yourself. That's what Abner is doing there. So when Abner does this, Ishbosheth, seemingly out of nowhere, grows a spine and speaks back to Abner. He says, what have you done? Why have you gone in and taken my father's concubine? And Abner was not a man who liked to be challenged. Certainly not by Ishbosheth, the man who depended on him for his strength and his authority in power. And Abner explodes with anger at these words, and he says this. Am I a dog's head? What a weird thing to say. Think about it. Last time when you were in grade school and you got in a squabble and you got a fight in the playground, and which one of the two boys on the playground said, Am I a dog's head? Like it's just, it doesn't have, so what is being said here? What is he talking about? Well, he's saying is, Am I a worthless, contemptible dog? Am I a traitor? See, Abner knows about God's promise to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set it up on the house of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. He knows about it. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner because he was terrified of him. Because he's not like his brother, Jonathan. He is not a warrior. No, Ishbosheth is a palace boy, he's a softy. And he has no place to stand there before Abner. He has no idea what to do. Abner is a fighter. He is a general. He's a captain. He's a warrior. He's a protector. And furthermore, Abner fancies himself as a kingmaker. Look what happens next in verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is this? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all of Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you. But I will demand one thing of you. Pay attention. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Looking like a kingmaker, Abner is. He did not see this coming. Did you see this coming? I'll tell you what, Abner definitely did not see this coming. What David just did here was out-tricked 
the trickster. What David just did here was out-con the con man. Remember I told you he's got some flaws in his character? David does. And here's evidence of one of them. He had less than honorable reasons for, for calling him out here. He had less than honorable reasons for, for calling back and saying, Oh, I just miss. I want my, my first love, my first girlfriend, the one that I fell in love with first. I just suddenly, out of nowhere, want to be able to spend time with her. This princess, Michal, that he had won in the hand of marriage when he defeated Goliath. No, he's trying to out-trick the trickster. You see, Abner... Although you may not have picked up on it, we've actually been following Abner for quite some time, further than many of us may have realized. You see, when Saul was alive, Abner is Saul's military general. So that means when the troops were standing there at the corners of the valley and Goliath is shouting, this giant is shouting across the valley, the troops, the Israelite troops that are standing and shaking in their armor, those are the troops of Abner. He is their general. He is their captain. And who was it that had to take David after defeating Goliath and bring him to Saul, bring him in to collect his reward? It's Abner. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, I'll just show you this quickly. This was the reward. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him, Goliath. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. So when David says this, this is David sticking it to Abner. He's saying, who's your daddy, Abner? Who's your boss, Abner? Who's your king, Abner? Because by fulfilling his request, Abner is going to have to take a knee before him and say, you are David, you are my boss, David, you are my king, because I know who you are. And with Michal, the princess, his wife, David would further strengthen his ties and his right to the throne of Saul. He's saying, after all, Michal, she is my first wife. She's the one that I won as a prize, the princess, when I defeated Goliath. So I will have a legal right to the throne. So Abner, no matter how many concubines you steal, I have the right to the throne. You see, for many of us, we have a real problem with this when we read this because we want to think good thoughts about David. But David is a flawed character. Yes, we like him very much, but he is not the ultimate king who is to come. He is just the shadow of the king that is to come, and in his shadow there are some dark edges to that shadow, and his journey to the throne, as I said, is not going to be in a straight line. So Abner fulfills David's conditions, and then he gets down to the serious business of negotiating with the elders of those tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. Look at verse 17 now. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, for some time you have wanted to make David your king, so now do it. For the Lord promised David, by my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all of their enemies. Would you notice here that the elders of these 11 tribes under Ishbosheth had been seeking David already to be their king for some time? So who's been standing in the way of God's people all being one and united together? Who is it? It's Abner. 
Who was it that put Ishbosheth up to be king? Who was it that placed him in this role? And from this verse, we see that the, the elders of Israel have been wanting David for some time. See, Abner has always been about himself. When it suited him to promote Ishbosheth, he promoted Ishbosheth. But when he, you say Ishbosheth as many times as you possibly can in a message and see what you do, all right? Yeah. And then when it suited him, when he sees the winds beginning to change, and he sees that if he falls in line behind David, it could benefit him, then he goes over to David. So as he builds a consensus among the elders, as he fulfills the conditions that David had in bringing his first bride to him, David calls him, and Abner arrives in Hebron with just 20 men, and David throws him a feast. And Abner soaks it all in. He's looking like a kingmaker. But let's look at the second phase of his life. This is a phase where he begins living like a rock star. I'll explain that in just a minute. Look at how this comes out in verse 20. When Abner, who had his 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all of Israel for my lord the king, so that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. Abner is living like a rock star. What should Abner have said when he got his first audience with this new king? He should have said something like this, David, I know that God has anointed you as king. I know that I have been at battle with you. I know that I've been fighting against you. But today I brought you my sword and I lay it here before you. I humbly put myself before you as your servant. But that's not what Abner does. Abner says something very different. You see, what Abner is saying here says, I made Ishbosheth king, and I can make you the king over whatever your heart desires. I am the kingmaker, and I can do great things for you. And he puts his muddy boots up on the desk, and he says, Let's do this thing. Abner is going all in on being a rock star full send. Think about it. The rock star is famous, lives in luxury. The rock star spends an inordinate amount of time partying, so much so that literally the act of partying becomes associated. We say what? That you are partying like a rock star. The rock star has plenty of women, frequently indulges in uncontrolled, excessive, and wild behavior. And above all, the rock star defies the law. They live as if it doesn't matter. And here Abner is going full-on rock star. He defies David. But even worse, he's defying God. You see, God has promised to give the kingdom to David. So when Abner says, I will gather all of Israel together so that you may reign, he is attempting to take the place of God, as if the throne of David would rest on the foundation of Abner. And he cannot deliver on what he is trying to promise here. And we'll see that in just a second here in the rest of the story. But before we go there, notice how David responds to Abner. He doesn't call him out 
but he doesn't put confidence in him either. He simply listens to what he has to say and then lets him go. Look what it says, verse 21b. David sent Abner away and went along in peace. If you read 2 Samuel, you should find it fascinating if you've spent any time in Psalms to this like, artistic and poetic way that David talks about his life over to the side to see how the experience of David are reflected in poetry and these words that he writes later. So surely David has in the back of his mind this interaction of Abner and the seduction of Abner in mind when he writes these words later in Psalm chapter 37. I'll put it on the screen for you here. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What had Abner just said? Did you pick up on it? Abner said, I will give you all that your heart desires, is what he said. But David says, here's what I have found. He says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So I'm never going to trust anyone or anything that would take the place of God in my life. Later in the same chapter, 37, verses 35 and 36 says this, I have seen a wicked and ruthless man, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. That takes us to the final part of the story with this title, Dying Like a Fool. You see, Joab, Joab is the hot-headed commander of David's army. So if we've, we've met Abner and he's the, the commander of Saul's army, now you've got Joab. He's the hot-headed commander of David's army. He's been out on a raid when Abner came in and met with David. When Joab returns and he finds out that David has received Abner and he had no consequence of him, he received him with grace, he's furious. And Joab goes in and meets with David. He says, what have you done? And Joab is convinced that Abner is a spy. And so he decides to take the law into his own hands. He sends messengers to go out after Abner, presumably with uh, the, the stamp of David's name, calling on Abner that he has to come back to Hebron. Scripture even tells us that David knows nothing about this, and that Joab did all of this behind his back. Take a look, verse 26. Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern at Sirah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into an inner chamber as if to speak with him privately. And there, to avenge the blood of his brother, Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and there he died. Jump ahead a few verses to 32. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king, that's David, and all the people wept at his graveside. Then the king sang this funeral song for Abner. Should Abner have died as fools die? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. You fell as one falls before the wicked. And all the people wept over him all over again. Abner is dying like a fool. David's funeral song tells us that he believed it was a tragedy that Abner died like a fool. He actually makes this interesting connection. So if, if your consideration, if you look at this and see that the, the well of Sirah was actually only two and a half miles away from Hebron. So Abner and his 20 men, they have departed. If you look at, in the chapter, in verse 21 is when they leave uh, the presence of David. In the time that Joab returned, finds out what's going on, delivers all the spoils to David, now has a meeting, has an audience with David, now he makes his plans and he sends his messengers. Abner and his men are only two and a half miles away. They had no purpose, 
no concern, no awareness of the impending doom and danger that was upon them. They were taking it easy. They were relaxing. They were partying. They were enjoying the rewards of the feast that they had just had with David and this treaty that they had just made with him. They had no sense of urgency, no passion to help David, and there Abner dies. Dies like a fool. So why did Joab, David's right-hand man, call Abner out outside of the city gates? We don't really have time to go into it today, but we learn in Joshua chapter 20, verse 7, that Hebron was one of the seven cities of refuge. Do you remember what that means? So a city of refuge means that you can flee and go to a city of refuge if you have killed someone, and there you can await a trial without fear of retribution. No one can kill you there. When you walk up to your worst enemy, you share secrets at the gate of the city of refuge, you are not realizing, Abner is not realizing the state of his own vulnerability. He's too busy congratulating himself to see that he wasn't prepared for what was coming, and that was Joab's knife. So close, but so far away. No armor, no discernment, no purpose, no caution, no protection. He had walked away from all the protection that could be offered unto him. The safest place that Abner could have been was in Hebron at the side of David, and he left. And David says he died like a fool. Come back with me for just a moment to that hotel meeting room in Charlotte, North Carolina. You've just heard that 20,000 troops are going to be sent and recalled into action overseas. You've quickly processed the information to realize, based on how the seating chart is lying out, that there are not that many sergeants in the room. That you are most likely or more likely to be activated than most of the men around you. They're going to need leaders. You also know enough to calculate that there's only going to be a few desk jobs or rear air security positions that are going to keep you out of harm's way with someone of your rank because now you at home have a 10-month-old at home and another one on the way. The commanding officer has put it all out there on the table. He was very clear. No fluff. Volunteers will get the first preference. Most likely everyone in this room is going to be called and is going to be sent, is going to be deployed. Now it's your move. Abner here in 2 Samuel chapter 3 dies like a fool. He's gullible and he showed a huge lack of discernment. Considering that his former position was as a military general, a captain, a leader of Saul's army, and here he's acting like a complete idiot. He leaves the city of refuge. It was his fatal mistake. He leaves David's side. He didn't question anybody. He didn't ask anything. He didn't double check anything. He just goes. He just went. In Psalm chapter 91, verse 2, we read this of David. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. Long story short, I didn't volunteer for the troop surge. 
I was alone there. I was unable to deliberate with my wife. I wasn't able to ask her what she thought. I didn't like feeling like I was being pressured into something. And it just seemed like this was something I needed to be patient about. I didn't feel good about making the decision without her. And truth be told, when it all was said and done, volunteering for the surge could have been the most foolish thing I could have done. I will say this of the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress. As far as I know, most of the men in that room were recalled. Men and women in that room were recalled into active duty, but I was not. My name is at the end of the alphabet, and so when I was finally called and I went up to the desk, I was completely blown away. I was informed that there was two immediate exemptions for the recall. If you were medically unable to go, and secondly, if you were enrolled in a graduate-level ministry degree program. Are you kidding me? He is my refuge and my strength. In him will I put my trust. I graduated that spring with my undergrad in music. Purely out of convenience, seeming out of coincidence, there was a vacant church at the end of our street, and the local university had taken it over and added a graduate program where you could get a master's degree in Christian ministry. I had been enrolled for a matter of months. I had attended only a handful of classes, but that was enough to qualify me for this exemption. My paperwork was stamped. I was sent back home to my wife and new baby. End of story. He is my refuge, my strength. In him I will put my trust. As the band comes forward this morning, do you trust God? Do you trust that God Almighty has a plan for your life that might be better than the plan that you've got for your life? He is my refuge and my strength. As we read this passage today, we ought to be reminded, don't die like a fool. You see, we all have an appointment with death, and that appointment will be kept. Hebrews chapter 9 says this in verse 27, As is appointed unto men once to die, but after that is the judgment. We don't know. Today could be the day. And in what state will we die? Scripture tells us that there is this road that is wide and that most people will die in sin, but that we can pursue a narrow road, a road where we can actually die with a righteous cloud of witnesses and be together in glory with Jesus. Don't die like a fool. Don't make one of these foolish decisions. First would be the foolish decision of dying without responding to the gospel. You see, sin separates us from God. One cannot go into the presence of the Lord if that person dies in sin. We read that in John 8 and 1 Corinthians 6, Isaiah chapter 59, Galatians chapter 5. Blessed are the pure in heart and the holy, for they shall see God, is what Matthew tells us, what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 tells us. Don't die like a fool. Don't die without obeying the gospel. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27 speaks of the wise and the foolish. The wise obey the Lord's commands and the foolish fail to obey. You surely plan to listen to God's will and Lord's will. You plan to believe it. You plan to repent of sin. You plan to confess Jesus before others. You plan to be baptized. Time and opportunity could be limited, friends. Don't die as a fool. Thirdly, dying while living solely for the present. Jesus tells a parable of a rich farmer in Luke chapter 12 who lives solely for the present. 
He tore down all of his barns and made grand plans to rebuild those barns with bigger barns. But he never made any plans for what would happen when he died. And Jesus tells us in that parable that he died that very night. How foolish to fail to prepare for eternity. Don't die like a fool. See, Abner failed to stay close to the king. We would be fools this morning to read this passage, read all that is in it, and make the same mistake. We need to stay close to the king, friends, King Jesus. Yes, he knows my failures. Yes, he knows my flaws. Yes, he knows your failures. Yes, he knows your flaws. He knows who you are, friends. He's God Almighty. But God, our God, is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Won't you stay close? Dear Lord, this morning, we look at the life of Abner, and we see a man who is done all types of things to try to position himself better in this world. And we are each guilty of doing the same thing. So we are flawed and damaged people, Lord, and you know that. We're not telling you anything. But you have made a way. Through your death on the cross, you have made it possible for us to be close to you. Whoever calls on your name, we read that we are to be called the children of God. We can be adopted into your family, be as close as possible. Teach us, Lord, to be close to you. In you we find our refuge. In you we find our strength. We put our trust in you this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.